Um, this passage has been, I would say, an incredible burden to carry for the last six months, because um, that's when I found out that I was going to be preaching on the woes. Um, and when I found out that I was going to be preaching on the woes, I said to many people, oh, I got the woes. Like, who wants to, who wants to have to preach on the woes? Um, and as I studied the pas passage, I would say I felt more and more burdened about preaching on the woes. And um, I'm actually a counselor, so I would say that I spend a lot of my time in life being a burden bearer um, and carrying people's burdens. So, and I, and I feel like one of the hardest things as a counselor is when you're meeting with someone or you're meeting with people and you see the choices that they're making and how the choices that they're making are really leading to their own self-destruction um, and are really harming themselves and harming other people. And they keep deciding that they don't want to change. Um, and they keep deciding really to choose destructive things for themselves over choosing life. That is like a huge burden, um, especially when you really care for people and you really long for them to get to experience the love and peace and joy that they can experience when they make different types of choices. And I feel like um, that was a way that I felt like I really related to Habakkuk as I studied about kind of his role as a prophet. So just imagine with me for a moment that if your job every day was to tell people that they were going to be judged. And you had to tell them specifically what they were being judged for and how they were going to be judged, what the judgment was going to be. Um, and sometimes as a counselor, I have to do that with people. I'm not saying you're going to be judged, but I'm saying if you keep making these choices, here are the consequences of what might happen. Um, whether it's you could end up being raped because you're engaging in um, risky sexual behavior or um, you know, you could end up with STDs or whatever, the list could go on. Sometimes I have to do that with people and I've had to say really hard things and that's always really painful and grieves my heart. So imagine with me that you have the job of Habakkuk and that you have to deliver these messages of judgment to people and that 99% of the time, nobody really cares what you have to say. Um, they don't really believe you. Um, and they, maybe they even decide that you should be stoned or you should be killed because of the message that you're bringing to them. On top of this, Habakkuk would be struggling and wrestling with the message, as we heard from Princey, um, that he's delivering, because really it has a bearing on his own personal life, um, and on his current and future life. So you find yourself in this place of wrestling with God because you know that he is holy and that he is just and that he is true. You know that he's declared himself to be a loving God but all you find is continual suffering carrying his message. So Princey just got to talk to you about really the hinge of the book of Habakkuk, telling us that in the midst of such a job description, that in the midst of such circumstances, that the righteous live by faith in God. And it's not about their, their faith, really. It's about who their faith is in. So their faith is in God, who is life, who's perfect goodness, he's security, he's safety, and the list could go on and on. And we're going to find a little bit more out today about who this God is um, that we can have faith in. And now I have the opportunity that feels like a burden, um, but I'll feel less burdened by the end because there is a joyful ending, um, 
to speak with you all, I have the burden to speak with you all about the unrighteous who do not live by faith in God, but live by faith in themselves. They live by pride, self-centeredness, self-dependence, self-fulfillment, self-glorification. So I get to speak with you about these woes, these threatens of punishment, because that's what a woe is, it's a threaten of punishment, um, on people who have proudly lived a life with the life goal of harming others so that people would be scared of them and do whatever they wanted. That was their life goal. So, but ultimately, fortunately, we won't end up hearing so much about the unrighteous in this passage, though you just heard really in the reading of the text that the majority of the content of the passage focus, focuses on the right, unrighteous. What we're going to find really that we're going to see God's glory as the main focus of this passage. And when I was thinking of this, the illustration that came to mind was like an EKG. So an EKG is like, you know, all the little lines and then it goes up. I think that's when like the heart is like beating strong. I'm not a doctor. So, but imagine with me the, an EKG, okay? So we're going to find that in this passage that God's glory overshadows every line. So um, if you look at verse 14, it, this, verse 14 is after eight verses of judgment. So the eight verses of judgment is like the little lines. And then we read 14, verse 14, which says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And we know that that's significant because in verse 13 we also read, Behold. So anytime you read behold in a passage of scripture, it's pay attention. Okay? So the spike is for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We're going to find in this passage that God's glory vanquishes any thought of the unrighteous and leaves the world silent before him. It leaves the world speechless by his presence. So again, after another five verses of judgment, we read in verse 20, But the Lord is in his holy temple, let all the earth keep silent before him. So you see, the conclusion of this passage is that God is shown to be great through the judgment he makes. So today, we're going to be talking about how God's glory is proclaimed through his just judgment. Hear that again with me. We're going to be talking about how God's glory is proclaimed through his just judgment. So what does this word glory mean? If this passage, this whole passage is all about God's glory, it's kind of important that we have a framework and a reference point for what God's glory is. So I did a study of this, and other ways really of des describing God's glory would be to use the words honor, majesty, renown. Um, I, I personally found that the word renown clicked the most with me um, because really it speaks to kind of like the history of what God is known for. You know, when we have relationships with people, it's the history of relating to them, of what blesses us about them that really sticks with us because we've seen it over and over and over again. So God's glory is really what he has been known for over and over and over again throughout history. And not false things that he's known for, but what is actually true that he is known for. Um, so God's glory is ultimately a proclamation of who he is. And just for you to think a little bit more about this, if you stop, were to stop right now, you can do this, and think about what you're known for. So what do people say about you? 
Um, what would be said about your character? What are you commended for? What do people enjoy or appreciate you, about you? I want you to only think of the positive things because ultimately it's only positive things that we would know God for if we know the true God. So just think about, you know, what are some things that you're known for? That's, that's ultimately what we're talking about when we're talking about God's glory. Not about what you're known for, but what he is known for. Um, so when we tell God what we appreciate about him, when we say what we're thankful for about him, when we tell others what he is known for with respect or with awe or thankfulness, really what we're doing is we're worshiping God. So we're saying, we're saying what makes him so glorious. Um, and worship really is a proclamation of reverence or adoration. And we kind of do this, to be honest, with each other and to a certain extent. We say, oh, I, I just love my friend so-and-so, like, like this is what I love about them. That, that's, in a sense, a form of worship. So um, John Piper, who is a well-known preacher, he says that we are here to worship God and enjoy him forever. And he talks about how enjoying God is an act of worship in itself. It really is the greatest compliment. Like when somebody's saying how much they enjoy you, that, that really is one of the greatest forms of complimenting somebody and admiring somebody and saying positive things about them. So that's really what John Piper is saying, that um, it's an act of worship to enjoy God and to be able to speak about how we're joy, enjoying him and that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. So in this passage, unfortunately, of the book of Habakkuk, what we find is that the Chaldeans are not satisfied in God. They are finding their satisfaction in themselves, in wealth, in security. They want the glory for themselves, and they want to be known as great and powerful. So now that we know what we mean when we're talking about God's glory, that we're talking about what he's known for, now we're going to talk about his just judgment. And as I said before today, we're talking about how God's glory is proclaimed through his just judgment. Um, and I truly wrestled with this idea of just judgment as I studied and studied the Old Testament. Uh, and I mostly have struggled with it because I don't really want it to be necessary. Um, so to be honest, I found myself crying literally often as I have prepared for this message about God's just judgment because... I know that it's necessary, but it really grieves my heart so much that we as people and that I as a person have chosen to be self-centered, unloving, unkind, and really the list could go on and on. And we've chosen to be all these things instead of choosing God and the things of the Lord. So instead of choosing to be loved perfectly by God and loving others the way God loves, we've chosen um, selfishness in ourselves. So if we were to go through really a history of mankind in scripture, uh, and even in history books, what we would find is that man has consistently chosen really to worship themselves, to worship idols over God over and over again, whether actual wooden idols, which we hear about in our text at the end, um, or whether it's idols of wealth, idols of security, idols of approval. Um, we could make an extensive list. So Man, throughout history, has worshipped themselves so much that they killed others, we victimize others to get what we want, and we harm others constantly. Um, we have actually worshipped harming others and living selfishly and violently. God was not thought of or worshipped at all. 
And this is really where we find ourselves in this book in Habakkuk. It's really heavy. We find that not only Judah, God's people, but also the Chaldeans will be judged for their destructive, selfish, self-centeredness. And we find that their judgment is actually going to proclaim God's glory and how great he is. Um, And I think this even just makes sense from a logical standpoint of that if God was to just continue to let people kill each other, that does not proclaim that he is a good and loving God. He needs to judge. Um, So why do the Chaldeans need to be judged? And why is it just of God to judge them? And the word just actually means morally right. So why is it morally right of God to judge the Chaldeans? And what is their judgment? So let's look at the passage, and we're going to find that the sin of the Chaldeans was devastating. Verses 6 through 8. I'm just going to read part of it. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who make you tremble? Then you will be spoil for them because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. So we learn here that the Chaldeans have ransacked the nations. They have taken the nation's possession by force and by violence. So think warfare, think looting, think slaughter, think taking everybody's stuff, think killing women and children without remorse, think taking prisoners, selling them as slaves. That's that's what the Chaldeans have been doing. And and this verse is saying basically everything that they have done is going to come back around to them. It's kind of like a logical consequence. If you treat everybody like that, most likely somebody's going to come and conquer you then at some point. Um, Verses 9 through 12. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame from your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life, for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. So we learn really part of the why here of the Chaldeans' violent behavior. We learn that the Chaldeans have killed and destroyed whole people groups, in order to feel safe and secure and build their own cities. Um, When I was thinking of this part of the passage, I was thinking, it made me think of the movie movie Taken. I don't know if you've seen that movie, um, where this man, father, his daughter gets taken um, to be sold as a prostitute, basically. And he is determined he's going to go, he's going to get her back. And there's this scene in the movie, um, I probably should have watched it before this, but I, I remember it enough. He actually encounters the wealthy business owners who are the reason why his daughter was taken. So there's all these these men, they're dressed up in suits, and basically they are living in wealth off of selling the daughters of other men and women, whether it's from the United States or wherever they're getting these girls from. And it's just really a really compelling scene, and I think made me connect with this passage because um, they don't care about... uh, whatever his name is, Liam Nelson or whatever. They don't care about his daughter, but they have, sorry, I'm not good at like names. They have their own daughters at home that they're probably tucking in at night and giving a kiss on the forehead. And here they are selling other people's daughters into prostitution. Um, And that's really, I think, a small picture of what the Chaldeans were like. Um, They're destroying families, destroying people's children, probably even prostituting people's children with themselves um, when they have their own children at home. Um, 
Verse 15, uh, it's a, kind of an interesting verse. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. Um, I don't have to go in t time to go into depth into this, but basically this verse is meant to be a metaphor, which is um, an illustration to show that the Chaldeans actually shamed the nations that they violated. So they didn't just violate them, but they also shamed them in the midst of that. One author said they made brutal merriment over the exposure of the nakedness of their enemies. Um, and when I was thinking of this, I was thinking, you know, of the Holocaust and how the victims were required to be stripped naked and showered in a large group of people, almost like it was like a herd. Um, and they were forced in, then into a room where they were going to be gassed. And now imagine if all these people were lined up laughing at them and mocking them as this was occurring and rejoicing over the fact that they were being gassed. Um, which actually, the, I was, when I was doing some research on this, the uh, Hitler and like, his commanders and stuff made it so that the people would be more separate from that so that they didn't have to see it. Um, but the Chaldeans are people who they think it's a great time shaming people as they're being stripped and slaughtered. Um, verses 18 to 19, let's read that. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols? Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a violent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. So basically, the Chaldeans were also worshiping idols, um, and just the Judeans were also worshiping, worshiping potentially the same idols as the Chaldeans. So just like the Judeans, they were also sacrificing their children to their gods on altars. So go back to the whole taken illustration I just said. They're actually not kissing their children in a bed at night. They're actually sacrificing their children on altars to their gods. So, so really, this, this helps us paint the picture of really a very gruesome picture of what the Chaldeans were like. And the judgment for the Chaldeans as we read through this passage was that really everything that they had done to others was going to come back around to them. And that the security that they tried to get, because that's what it was all about, having security, having wealth, the wealth that they stole, the way they dominated others by killing them, all of this was going to come back around to them as punishment for their wickedness and hatred. Because you see, God's glory and his holiness was proclaimed in his just judgment of the mold of sin that was spreading across entire countries as this people group started taking over tons of countries. You see, sin is not just bad, it's pervasive, and it spreads like a disease. And God loved mankind too much to let the mold of sin destroy everything. God's just judgment is not just about those he punishes, but it is also about him defending the helpless. Um, there's a lot of helpless people in this passage that you, you don't necessarily think about from reading it. You're thinking more about how wicked the Chaldeans were, but think about all the people who were suffering as a result of the behavior and choices of the Chaldeans. And God's just judgment is very much about defending the helpless and those who are being taken advantage of and those who are suffering. So here in this text, hear with me, as in H-E-A-R, that God's just judgment shows that man's glory is futile and evil. So the, the glory of the Chaldeans was futile and evil because the Chaldeans were basically saying, look at me, I'm so good at killing people and stealing from others. 
I am the best wicked person ever. That's basically what they were saying. So God's just judgment shows that man's glory is futile and evil and proclaims God's glory, that he is good, his ways are good, his law is good, and that he is right. And if God didn't punish such evil, wouldn't we be sitting here wondering what on earth kind of God is he? God's just judgment of evil proclaims his glory. It shows that he is the opposite of evil, that he is good. I would imagine that people would break out in cheers when the wicked are destroyed and the oppressed are set free, almost like we'd feel at the end of a happy movie when there's evil, you know, you're, you're elated because evil has been destroyed, good has won, um, there would be breaking out in cheers or at least crying tears of relief because good has won. So God's glory is declared in his just judgment. In this passage, Habakkuk, when he hears um, the woes, he realizes and hears the answer to all of his questions and statements. He was right in what he said in chapter 1. Princey kind of reviewed that with you. He was right that God is holy. God is purer of eyes than to see evil, and he cannot idly look at wrong, something he was calling God out for. His law, God's law, is declared righteous and perfect, and self-dependence, self-reliance, self-sufficiency is shown for what it is, wickedness. God wanted us to be giving, loving, God-centered, other-centered people. Habakkuk was also right that God is sovereign. The law is not paralyzed. Sovereign means that God's in control. The law is not paralyzed, and justice will go forth, and the wicked will not be allowed to surround the righteous. And so God is declared sovereign. He is in control, not the Chaldeans, who arrogantly presume that they own the earth, and they treat all the other nations like garbage. God is alive and at work, not the idols of the day, nor idols of any day. And, I, and as I read about idols, I just felt like, you know, God must be so sick of idols. Like, if you read throughout the history of Scripture, over and over and over again, the people worship idols, 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 idols. And he tells his people not to believe in idols. And really, it must be one of the greatest insults, um, people, his people believing in idols, or people in general believing in idols. Because it's really, it's like, some carved piece of wood from a tree that he created is supposed to bring good fortune. So imagine with me right now, if we all went outside and we all walked up to a tree and we gave it a hug and we asked some requests of the tree um, to, to bring us good fortune in our life. Um, which it sounds silly thinking about it, but we, we still do this. It just looks a little bit nicer because we're not hugging trees. Um, but we do it with our smartphones, we do it with maybe our stock investments, with our careers. We expect these things to bring us happiness and fulfillment when God has said, I am the one who brings you fulfillment. I'm the one who brings you satisfaction and joy. Habakkuk was also right that God is faithful. He said at one point, we will not die. He knew that God would be true to his covenant with his people. When he hears that God will judge the Chaldeans, he probably remembers the timeline of history of God's consistent forgiveness of his people. He remembers God's determination to bring them back to him, whether it was through consequences, through judges, through prophets. 
God has always sought to bring back his people to himself, and he has used his just judgment to do so. He doesn't give up on his people. Yet God will not stay angry forever, and Habakkuk knows this because he's also seen this over and over again, that God forgives. Habakkuk knows, though, that God will judge and that God has to judge the mold of sin to keep it from spreading. So we learn in this passage that God's holiness, his sovereignty, and his faithfulness is so big and weighty that everyone will be so silent when they see it happening and in so much awe that they wouldn't consider speaking. The last verse. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. We are no different from the Judeans or from the Chaldeans. Mankind has not changed. We are still the same. We just try to beautify our selfishness to make it look okay. So let us be careful if we're in this room today and we think that we are different from the nations of that day. When Christ came, he made it very clear that how people understood God's law and God's holiness was very off. We hear him saying, You have heard it said, do not murder. I say to you, anyone who is angry with his brother in his heart is guilty of murder. You hear him say, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But anyone who looks at a woman or man in his heart with lust has committed adultery. He takes it to a new level that people didn't really realize that the heart um, really can be very sinful, even if we, we don't necessarily see the actions on the outside. So God was even holier than his people had realized, and he's holier than we realize. And our gravity are just like those and the Chaldeans. We heap up things for ourselves. We may not actually murder anyone, but we hate people in our hearts when we slander them. We covet or lust after things others have, instead of thanking God for what he's given us. And he's given us so much. We could never say that he hasn't given us a lot. We live in this country. He has given us so much. Um, and we definitely have idols. Oh, do we have idols. Whether it's um, having a beautiful, perfect home, having perfect children, um, looking attractive and having stylish clothes to impress others, posting our perfect pictures on Facebook. Um, we find... we. And I think especially as women, we tend to find our security in having an image that impresses. Um, or maybe for, for us, it's like our career. Maybe we're a career woman. Um, it's different for each person. But we basically just try to make our idols look pretty. Um, so let's examine our own hearts here today. Who of us wants to be important, to be put first, for things to happen in our timing? We expect to be treated how we want. When does pride show its ugly head in our lives? We live in a world, as Princey said, that encourages making yourself great, that encourages us to be dedicated to getting what we want. So woe to us, woe to us. We could each probably make our own oracle of woes. It just would sound a little different. So I imagine, don't worry, I'm not going to leave us here. So I imagine that in light of all of this sin and violence and destruction that Habakkuk must feel undone. He knows the history of his people, of mankind, an intense longing for the king of all kings to come 
the one who will reign in all perfection and set God's people free. There must be an intense longing for that, for him. The one who will put an end to this cycle of sin and destruction. The one who God has promised. He's probably thinking, when will this end? At least if I were him, that's what I would be feeling and thinking. And that's what I've been feeling and thinking as I've read and recounted the history of wickedness. But little did Habakkuk know, he knew God was going to send a Messiah. But little did he know that God was going to come down from his throne. That God himself was going to come and take on all of the woes. And not just the woes of Habakkuk's people, but the woes of the entire world. We have been talking about how God's glory is proclaimed in his just judgment. And the only time in history that God exacted judgment on someone who did not deserve judgment was when he took our punishment upon himself. It was upon his son, his sinless, loving, serving son, Jesus Christ. God sent Christ to take on the woes of the entire world, to take on our woes. Christ came and lived the perfect life that we could never live. He fulfilled God's law, the law that God asked his people, the, God, the law that God has asked us to follow, and they and we could never get it right. But Christ came and lived the perfect life that they and we could never live, and he died and took our judgment. He took our woes upon himself so that we might be forgiven and live. You see, God said that the wages of sin is death, and he must be true to his word, so Christ took our death upon himself. So let's, we're going to go back to the woes. We're going to look at the woes, and we're going to see what Christ has done for you and for me and what he has borne upon himself for our sakes so if we look at verse 6, I'm not going to read them all through again. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges. If we were to read, read this as Christ taking on the judgment of the Chaldeans, we would read that Christ is being declared guilty and being judged for taking from others what wasn't his when all Christ ever did was to give others gifts and love that they didn't deserve. How glorious is God that he would do that for us. Verse 9. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. Christ would be being declared in this verse as guilty and being judged for lording it over others and never getting messy and living in safety off the deaths and demise of others when all he ever did was sacrifice his comfort, his safety, and security for others. This proclaims God's glory how wonderful he is. Verse 12. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. If Christ was to take this woe upon himself, he would be being declared guilty and being judged for killing others to own a city. When in reality, Christ had nowhere to lay his head because he chose to love and serve God by loving and serving others and he gave up his own very life for those who were killing others. God's glory shows that he is so sacrificially loving for our sakes. But we cannot stop here. Because though Christ suffered death for our sakes, death did not defeat him. Sometimes I get stuck grieving because I feel so sad. And because I'm, I think it's partly because I'm an empathetic per person, I just feel so sad about 
um, what Christ had to bear for me. It just makes me really upset. <laughs> um, but we can't stop here because Christ is alive and he is risen and he conquered the power of sin and death. It had no hold on him. He proved that he has the power over sin and death, over my sin and death, that he is more powerful than our sin and if we accept his gift of salvation and eternal life by trusting in Jesus Christ's death for the payment of our sins, we become recipients of all of his power and we are declared fully righteous like his perfect spotless son, Jesus Christ. Now that is something to celebrate. Not only that, but we get to inherit a future world where there is no more fear or need for judgment because God's justice reigns completely. That means morally right things are always happening all the time. That means no pain, no suffering, no harm or fear of harm. We inherit a place where love, peace, truth, joy, they all reign and are a constant reality. And we actually get to be all of those things as we relate to others. We will not harm anyone ever again, which that really excites me too. So God is showing us so clearly through Christ what he's telling us. Idols don't compare to me. I am willing to die for you. Idols sit on a shelf. You have to pursue idols to get a brief fill from them. But I pursued and I continue to pursue you so that I can pour my love on you. My value never changes. A house gets old. Perfect children don't exist. Approval lasts only for a brief time, and then you have to get more. He's saying, I never change. I am good, and my ways are good. Seek me and get to know me by reading my word. Only I can satisfy your soul. You guys should write down Isaiah 55 and read it later. Only I will bring you peace. The more you know my perfect love, my joy, my peace, the more you will want to know me and share me with others. I want all to come to a saving knowledge of who I am. So if you're here today and you don't have a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ, God has you here today for a reason, and I really believe that. He is pursuing you, and he wants you to receive his love for you in hearing that Christ died on the cross for your sins so that you would not have to experience judgment. Christ took your judgment and your woes, and God is asking you to choose him, to choose his love, which is displayed through Christ over choosing to be king of your own life and trying to fulfill yourself with things that never satisfy. He doesn't want you to have to suffer judgment for all the ways that you have hurt others but ultimately hurt him. God's heart longs so much for you to receive the gift of eternal life through his son, Jesus Christ. And feel free to talk to any of us here if that's something that's on your mind um, after hearing this word. So God's glory is shown. His name is made renowned through his just judgment. His holiness and the purity of his law is declared. Who could have imagined that his glory would shine even brighter that his name would be shown to be so great as to sacrifice his very own self, his very own son, to take the judgment that should have been poured out upon us and to take that judgment upon himself. 
Let's hear the, the two EKG heartbeats of the passage again. For the earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord came down from his holy temple and has proved again that he is so good. Let all the earth keep silence before him. I'm going to pray for us. God, I just thank you so much for your word, and I thank you so much that we can get to know um, so much more of who you are by reading it. And God, we just really thank you so much that you are holy and that you long for so much better things for our lives than we ever could for ourselves. We thank you that you are in control and that you are faithful to us every day. Um, You've promised us that you will be faithful to us. And we just thank you that you've loved us so much that you decided to die for our sake so that we could get to have a perfect relationship with you and that we would get to experience freedom from sin that we would get to be able to experience your love and to love others so much more fully. And God, I just pray that um, just as we leave here today, that this won't just be something that convicts our heart in a moment, but, um, but just as the word infiltrates our heart, that we will leave here wanting to love others more fully and wanting to know you more and wanting to share you with others. Um, and if we don't know you here today, that... Um, just that this word will leave us wanting to know you more. And um, I just thank you so much for your spirit's work in our heart. And I just pray that you'll continue to work in us. And I thank you so much that you will do so. And I just pray all this in Jesus' name. Please stand with us.